Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Judge Business Debate. My name is Michael Kitson and I'm an economist here at the Cambridge Judge Business School. In this series, specialists from Cambridge Judge and the wider Cambridge community discuss and debate topical issues of business and management. In today's session, we are focusing on gender and specifically gender inequality in the workplace. Women tend to be paid less than men. They often are concentrated in a narrower range of occupations than men. And women are often underrepresented in the senior positions of many organisations. Why has this happened and what should be done about it? Joining me today, we have three panellists. Professor Sucheta Nadkarni is Sydney Professor at Cambridge Judge Business School, Director of the School's Women's Leadership Centre and Professorial Fellow of Newnham College, Cambridge. She has done extensive research on the issue of women in the workplace. Belinda Bell is Director of Cambridge Social Ventures, which is part of the Centre for Social Innovation at the Business School, where about over 60% of the ventures are led by women. And Dr. Mia Gray is University Senior Lecturer in the Department of Geography at the University of Cambridge and a Fellow of Girton College. Mia's research looks into the social and organisational dynamics of work, including the structure of labour markets. Thank you for joining me. Despite legislation, we see a persistent gender pay gap with women being paid less than men. In the UK, more than 10,000 large firms have recently provided details of their gender pay gap. And three quarters of these firms pay men more than women. Also, there are differences in occupational structure. In the UK, women are more likely to work in healthcare and education compared to men, but are less likely to work in finance and science. And in terms of career progression, many women seem to face a glass ceiling that hinders their progress. The figures show that women make up only 6% of FTSE 100 chief executives, only 18% of national newspaper editors, only 26% of cabinet ministers, and only 32% of MPs. A statue of Millicent Fawcett, one of the suffragist campaigners, was recently unveiled in Parliament. And one wonders if she was alive today with what she'd think about how far we've come since her campaigning. I'd like to start with a provocation to the panel. Some economists who believe in the power of free markets suggest that the gender inequalities that we see are just the outcome of market forces, the forces of supply and demand and often reflect the preferences of women to work in certain occupations and to take, take career breaks to raise families. How would the panel respond to this argument? Mia. Thanks, Mike. I think, to a large extent, how we understand and think about markets is not necessarily how we're taught about them uh, in, in economics. Um, Gary Becker very famously argued that Workers are rewarded for the level of investment they make in themselves through education and experience, and that gender inequality really just reflects this fact. And for various reasons, such as child rearing, that women invest less in themselves, have lower productivity, and therefore paid less. Um, this argument gets updated by people like Catherine Hakim, who say women are choosing, making different kind of choices in the labor market choosing either to be uh, home-centric or work-centric. Um, and therefore, what we see in pay differentials are actually just, just choice. Um, we do know this doesn't really hold up empirically. Pay isn't proportionate to human capital. It's not proportionate to productivity. Uh, so we, we, we know that female workers have just as much human capital as their male counterparts. We know there's a large penalty for women having children uh, that goes way beyond the time lost through maternity leave. So there, we know there's other factors uh, go, that, that, that are um, 
affecting kind of pay, factors that the market metaphor actually can't capture. Uh, what, what is skill in an occupation? How we think about skill, how we recognize and reward skill uh, is often argued to be a social construct rather than, than something that the market itself determines. How are stereotypes or kind of implicit bias kind of affect the way we think about different workers, how capable and, um, they are and, and how we reward them. Um, many other issues as well, which, which we can talk about as we go on. So, but I think the market is, uh, catches some elements of what goes on in labor markets and how people are rewarded for their efforts, but not all. So Chetta, how would you respond to that? Thanks, uh, Mike and Mia. Um, I think this is a very interesting question. It's a very good question. Um, and actually, I would turn it around and say that if we actually went with the market argument, then the rational thing for organizations to do is actually to promote gender equality and gender inclusiveness at the top of the organizations. Um, in if, Whether you're looking at investment markets, whether you're looking at consumer markets, whether you're looking at, uh, you know, governments and other institutions, um, you know, you have a lot more gender inclusiveness there. In the markets, they are pretty much split uh, equally. And when you have complete gender imbalance at the top of the organizations, what happens is that the organizations are disconnected with 50% of their consumer market. And so they will not be able to really develop strategies that are catering, that are customizing the kind of products that they produce, the kind of services that they uh, develop, the kind of um, uh, sort of uh, corporate governance mechanisms that they implement. They are going to be more and more and more disconnected from the key stakeholders that the company are serving. So if you really look at the economic argument, it should actually be the opposite. But why, with all these incentives that companies have in order to promote gender equality, which we see more and more in terms of the business case for gender diversity and equality, you still see that there is a bottleneck for women at the top. So I would actually put this as uh, uh, something that is not rational, that companies are doing something that is not rational. Because if they actually paid attention to the market and actually tried to do what the market is uh, from an organic point of view in terms of how the external environment and the market is developing, companies should be actually investing more in women. And there is a lot of research that has shown that gender diversity at the top has implications for a lot of firm performance as well as innovation, as well as corporate governance. So so there is already a lot of evidence showing that having uh, women uh, in senior positions and having gender balance in senior positions is good for the organizations. Belinda. Well, I like the fact, Michael, that you thought you would start this with this idea, this provocation. And it reminds me when you last invited me uh, here and, uh, and you explained to me that some economists um, still believe in the trope of homo economicus, you know, this, uh, this rational self-interested person. And, um, and being not involved with, uh, with the field uh, directly uh, in terms of economic research, I didn't realise that people still thought that. And, you know, this provocation, the idea that it is supply and demand that is uh, leading to this continuation of gender inequality, it, it's very hard for somebody to, like me to see how people can seriously make that case. Given what Suchette has just said, it seems very clear that we're looking at structural sexism that runs throughout systems of power in our societies. Um, so. I think we can move on from discussing whether or not this is a thing. 
Well, it's interesting. Well, I agree. Perhaps we should move on. But this is a very common argument and a common refrain you hear at the moment saying we shouldn't be really looking at the gender pay gap or occupational differences because it reflects the forces of supply and demand. And we need it's a market explanation rather than a structural explanation. Now, I do say I find problems with that argument because when you do look at the evidence, it's certainly true that if you take the pay gap, some of it can be explained by occupational differences, which begs the argument, why are there occupational differences? And some, it, some of it can be also explained by job tenure, people taking time out of the workforce. But the vast majority of the pay gap cannot be explained by economic models. Mm -hmm. About 70% can't be explained, which does suggest, and I agree, there is some structural problem. If you call it a structural problem or institutional problem, certainly discrimination in the workplace, which, if you take an economic argument, to, to get back to Sujeta's point, is irrational. Yes. Mm. Because it's not good for the economy. It's not good for, certainly not good for women. Yeah. It's certainly not good for the economy overall. And it's not good for businesses. Yeah. So, so, so what, why are businesses doing this? Markets are socially constructed. So, I agree with that. So, so, I would so, agree with that. So the idea that, yeah, that, that what should happen, as Sujet has explained, it's not happening. And that's why intervention uh, needs, to, needs to happen to, to make change. Because if we leave it, this idea that market forces will make things balance out in a rational, fair and productive way for everyone involved, clearly doesn't, it isn't what's happening. Sujet, I mean, you, you, some of your research, I think, suggests that businesses are underperforming because of gender imbalances and gender inequalities. Is, is that correct? Yes. So uh, my own research, but also a lot of research that has been done uh, recently in management has actually shown that having gender diversity at the top uh, really helps companies uh, engage better in uh, a variety of uh, variety of areas, right from um, uh, reducing corporate fraud there was a recent study which actually showed from China, actually, which showed that having gender diversity at the top, it was published in Academy of Management Journal. Um, and they found actually that uh, having gender diversity on the board um, um, reduces the likelihood of uh, likelihood of corporate fraud. There is research that has shown that having more gender balance at the top um, in top management teams uh, increases innovation, the capability of companies to innovate. And actually, my own study, which we recently did in China on small and medium-sized enterprises, we actually found that having uh, gender balanced teams in small and medium-sized companies actually lead to uh, greater capabilities of the company capabilities on technology, in marketing, in, uh, in operations, in, um, uh, in human capital. We looked at a range of different capabilities and we found that the ability of the firms to actually develop these capabilities and also to innovate is very much higher when the teams are, uh, are, are diverse, are gender diverse. I think that's right. I think, I, I think, I mean, not that gender equality alone is enough to, yes. to, to make a firm profitable, but diversity of all types is really helpful for yes. companies and for the public sector as well. And of course, this data that came out recently also was all the public sector organizations as well. But to give diverse views uh, on, on problems, on, on new products, um, to bring in different experiences of the world, um, you know, it's enormously important, not just on, uh, as executives on boards, but in tech. Yeah. Uh, as programmers, as project managers, in public life, uh, local councils, on, as well as kind of nationally, in the NHS and finance, that you know, all that, 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 that actually having different views uh, represented and people to kind of argue from another point of view 
is enormously important yeah. for the innovative process as well as profitability and governance structures. Exactly. And one of the things that I would also like to point out, which we found in our research, was that it, it is not about having more women. It's about gender balance. So what we found actually was that in some of our uh, teams, we had actually more women than men, and men were in the minority position, and we didn't have the most optimal dynamic. The most optimal dynamic when there were equal balance of males and females. So when we talk about females, there are, and I think Michael pointed out to gendered uh, professions, there are some professions where actually males are in the uh, minority, like nursing, for example, education, um, you know, primary and, and uh, secondary, higher secondary education, we have some professions which are gendered and the gendered profession dynamic is not good for anyone. Um, and any kind of imbalance or diversity of any diversity imbalance is, is kind of not good um, uh, for, for, for anyone. So the arguments that we found in our paper and the evidence is, is much more about balance rather than one better than the other or uh, more women. Just to pick up, I totally agree the, the importance of diversity uh, and diversity, including gender diversity, makes a successful organization. One of the reasons this university has been successful is not to do with management per se, it's to do with the di diversity. And in terms of innovation, innovation is often when you collaborate with people who are different to you rather mm. than people who are similar to you, not just gender, but yeah, know, on exactly. many, many yeah. dimensions. But um, what I'm trying to understand is we argue that diversity is good for business and organizational performance. Why isn't it happening? Because if we believed in this rational notion of economic actions, then businesses should be much more pushing towards diversity because they know it's not only good socially and culturally, but it's good in terms of economic performance and business performance. So what, why isn't it happening? I, I think there are some um, very subtle things that go on in the workplace that reinforce the particular power structure that we have right now. I think a lot of it happens through implicit bias and through social networks that often people go into the workplace with very good intentions and want to mentor younger colleagues, the younger generation. Um, they share connections and their knowledge of the institution. They um, might matchmake, kind of, you know, Belinda's next promotion might be with Mike, and I know he's a good boss, and I'll send you over or there. Or the other and, way around. Or the other way around. That this, this, this may be a way in which an older colleague kind of mentors younger colleagues. If the older colleague is not aware of the resources and the subtlety of, 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 of how promotion processes work, um, Often they choose people who remind them a lot of themselves, who, who, who they can see the potential in that person, they can see their bright spark, and with all the goodwill in the world, um, they then help that person along without uh, a broad awareness of, of how these things function, how promotional opportunities are presented. Then it's very easy to just reproduce the uh, dynamics of the workforce that already exist. It's funny to you mentioning a uh, mentoring there, Mia, because I was going to uh, 
highlight some research done by Murray Edwards College last year, which is a, a, a women's college here at the university. Um, they released some report, reports about collaborating with men, about women and men in the workplace. And one of their proposed ideas is about reverse mentoring, so where a um, older man probably um, joins together with a younger woman, but it's not for her to learn about him. It's for him to learn about her and how her life is and what her experiences are. And I'd never seen that proposed before, although perhaps it's common. Um, and it was one of their sort of list of ideas about how we can work together, as Sushetta says, this is about balance, uh, to make things better for everybody. I mean, some of the other things they refer to are, you know, better chairing. I'm sure the other women around the table have experienced the thing in a meeting when uh, when some you say a thing and somebody uh, uh, thinks that it was a man who said that thing. I mean, this happens all the time that um, women's ideas are, are, are first ignored and then stolen by a bloke who gets the credit <laughs> for it. And so just really good chair chairing and actively elevating voices is, is clearly something that we can we can help to improve. Um, but uh, I suppose we have to accept that unconscious bias exists in us all. Um, and then there is a thing about measuring, isn't there? About, about you yep. know, we won't get better if we accept that some of this is unconscious. We don't get better unless we measure and, and actively take steps to support women in the workplace. Could, could I just pick up on the, um, the issue about making men and women work better together? Because I think this is, part, this is a theme that's going to emerge in the Women's Leadership Conference here, here at the Cambridge Judge where the theme is growing talent, talent fostering collective success. I think, Suchetta, this is an area you're particularly interested in looking at, and this conference is going to look at this, this topic. Yes, so uh, one of the things, going back to, the, uh, to some of the structural uh, barriers that we talked about, I'd like to build on sort of yeah. two of them and then move on to this question. Uh, so the two issues, one of the biggest issues, so we actually did a research on um, uh, on uh, sort of talking to women who've actually reached senior positions to ask them about what are some of the uh, some of their experiences and what are some of the things that they would advise uh, um, men and women about rising in career. And one of the things that they mentioned, which actually has been found in research as well, is that women actually get mentored much more than men, but men have sponsors, which women do not. Absolutely. And there is a yeah. very key difference between getting a mentor and getting a sponsor. Because mentor is someone who provides advice, who provides guidance. But sponsors are people who are going to vouch for you, who are going to basically go and say, you know, give this person a promotion. And, and women somehow seem to be losing out on that in the workplace. Uh, and that actually is one of the really key aspects. And I have, we also talked when we talked to uh, women, they actually cited so many examples where they had amazing male sponsors who really made a huge difference for them in terms of uh, changing their career. So I think bringing the, uh, you know, working on this together and bringing, uh, making this a collective effort is extremely important. There is just a recent paper that actually came about on CEO succession and that uh, that actually uh, paper found that whenever there was a gender switch in succession where females were taking over from male uh, CEOs, the, uh, the male CEOs who actually helped the female CEOs with the transition improved their likelihood of success significantly. So I think there is an importance of, um, uh, of both. I think female mentors um, working with, uh, you know, male juniors and uh, 
um, male uh, seniors working with uh, female juniors. I think it's very important to, uh, to sort of uh, work together as well. And one other small point about the unconscious bias that we've been talking about is also the, there has been research that has shown that um, uh, the bias against women in terms of rising or against uh, any kind of unconscious bias is highest when people are evaluating potential and lowest when people are evaluating tried and true performance and achievement. And there is a tendency to sort of uh, focus a lot on potential uh, because we, th that is the big unknown and it's very difficult to evaluate. But the moment you go to uh, objective criteria, so there is this recent book by Iris Bonet from Harvard on uh, diversity by design and she emphasizes this that actually, of course, based on tons of research that if you focus on performance and objective criteria of performance, it reduces and minimizes the bias. Whereas if you get into the realm of, oh, we want to promote this person because this person chose potential. You know, that's where the differences in interpretation come in. That's where the con unconscious bias comes in. So if, if that can be worked on, then to a very large extent, the structural barriers can be removed. Absolutely, I agree completely that uh, the more formal yeah promotion systems are, the better women do. That's why women do tend to do better in the public sector yeah. than they do in the private sector because they do have more formalized systems of progression. And um, you, you know, your, your example of, of potential is such a fantastic example because it could mean anything, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, it, it, all our implicit bias kind of about, uh, is, is it a, is potential masculine or feminine, you know, come, comes to the to fore when we, when we are not very formal in what we're looking for. Um, so so um, I think that's a really important point. And, um, you know, the, it's a particular problem in new industries. Mm -hmm. um, so social media about 10 years ago had a number of studies done on their HR systems that showed not only did they not have a very formal promotion system, but they didn't even know what educational background was the right background to do well in social media. So here was an industry that um, really worked a lot on by social network, and that's how, both how they recruited and how uh, people went through the promotion process. Um, and it ended up in many companies being heavily uh, male-dominated because of that, I think, or at least in part because of that. I was pleased to see uh, this week that the Fawcett Society, in relation to the Fawcett st uh, the, um, uh, statue going up, were uh, promoting that job uh, should be advertised as flexible by default. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I suppose, you know, I, I'm amazed that, that that isn't how people think about employees, and certainly how I think about employees. But, you know, things like that, which is, again, when we talk about where you can change the formal structures, can really contribute to making a difference. And I think the we, this isn't a box ticking exercise. This is about making things better for everyone. Because of course, the, there are lots of male parents who want to be at home with their kids or picking the kids up from school or doing whatever, caring for their parents and, and all the rest of it. So there are clearly intersectional barriers that, are, that, that different people experience in different ways. But I really think that the importance of getting 
the, the conversation about women in the workplace elevated is that it helps us to also um, uh, see diversity across the spectrum yeah. in terms of trans or non-binary people, yeah. issues of race. Um, so, so it's such an important conversation to be having. And there are, and in, in all of those areas, we also see explicit bias. So we, I don't think we're trying to pretend that we don't live in a racist society. And it's not going to help if we try to pretend we don't live in a sexist society. We do. These are institutional and structural uh, barriers to people. And, and we can really need to address those formally to make change. Much of the discussion has been about people in quite senior positions. Obviously, many women are actually working at the bottom mm. and in the middle. I mean, do, do the same issues apply or uh, have we got a, I mean, it's, it's a bigger problem really at the bottom, really, because there's, there's few women at the top, but there's not, there's also very few jobs at the top as well. I yeah. mean, how, how do we think, how do we... I think it, I think it's a real issue, and um, and I, I'm aware of it as a, as a middle aged middle class woman myself that my uh, contemporaries uh, sometimes fall into this trap of thinking things have got better over our professional lifetimes, and I'm really not sure if that's because things have got better or because we're now in a senior position, so we're not exposed to quite the awfulness we were exposed to when we were younger. I suspect that things are if the lived experience of somebody at the bottom of the socioeconomic spectrum in the early stage of the career are no better, considering the sort of mainstream. Of pornography that young women are now exposed to, for instance. And so um, I, I, it is the place of somewhere like the business school to focus on leadership uh, and, and women's leadership. There's a very important point there, but we mustn't forget the, the majority of people are not in those positions. And I think the situation is, is, is dire. There's a, you know, so we've been talking about vertical segregation. There's also, of course, horizontal yeah. segregation with people in the same um, occupational strata are, 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 have enormous amounts of segregation and low pay. And of course, with the burgeoning of the service sector and uh, the care sector, so many of these jobs are female-dominated occupations. Um, and uh, of course, there's very little kind of institutional structure or regulation to actually make these jobs well-paid jobs. There's nothing innate in these jobs that means they're low skilled, right? Again, this goes back to how we think about skill. Mm -hmm. um, you could argue that a lot of these caring jobs are enormously high skilled, um, embodied skills, yeah. uh, social skills, as well as kind of knowledge about the job and about whoever they're caring for. Um, but of course, 50 years ago, we had uh, union strength that we don't have today in the service sector, although there are certain areas in, in, in which um, they've, they've been successful. Uh, we have very little regulation. We have a minimum wage law now. But um, uh, of course, there's ways in which uh, certain firms try to get around that as well. So th there's, there's not a lot of regulation putting a floor on, on these occupations on the bottom of the labor market. And that's part of the problem. And and again, it's intersecting with, with race, poverty, Absolutely. and all the rest of it. We yeah. can't get away from this. So there is actually research that has shown that um, diversity is intersectional, uh, that it's very um, difficult to just talk about one source of diversity and not talk about others. For example, there have been studies that have shown that um, a lot of diversity initiatives benefit um, uh, white women, for example, much more than, say, for example, uh, women from other areas. There are other 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 studies that have shown that you know gender uh, that diversity initiatives much work much better for gender rather than for race and some of the other 
diversity issues as well. So I think intersectional is important. But one of the things I think that Belinda brought up was really interesting and very, uh, very pertinent is this notion of leadership. So when we think about leadership, we typically think about women at the top. But that's not the definition of leadership. So leadership is a very broad definition. So um, women at all levels of the organization are holding leadership positions, but different types of leadership positions. Women who are leading their own businesses are leaders, whether it is a one-person business or whether it is a 10,000-people business. You know, there is a lot of leadership involved. Anytime you have to interact with different types of people and really you're responsible for uh, a role and you have to really uh, sort of manage people of any sort, whether it's your external stakeholders, whether it is people within your organization, leadership is important there. So I would just like to sort of emphasize that when we talk about leadership, I think we, we think that leadership is only about women at the top. And that's not, not the way we look at uh, we look at leadership for us, leadership is very broad and sort of encompasses uh, leadership at all levels. Student leadership, leadership, students who are you know doing things, who are uh, engaging in interest groups, who are who are starting new societies. That's leadership as well. So we are looking at leadership at all levels, uh, and and that's I think very important to to sort of look at leadership much more broadly. We've talked a lot about gender imbalances and intersectional imbalances at, at the level of the business and the organization. I wonder what, what you see the role of government is here, particularly where we started from. If, if you believe in the power of market forces, then you would say government should keep out of the way and, and the, the market will sort out the problems. Um, I think I'd argue it certainly hasn't done that <laughs> since the Industrial Revolution, but there, there are those who argue that. I mean, so so, so what, what is the role of government, Sucheta? So one of the things, um, I think there are two broad roles for government. One is a more strong role, which is in terms of quotas and mandates and things like that. And the other one is much more in terms of empowering, as I call it, which would be much more in terms of really creating enabling conditions for uh, men and women uh, uh, to really kind of thrive and succeed. Um, and in our study that we did, we looked at um, uh, women, of course, now in our case, it's still women on the board because that, that was the study, but we looked at representation at the top level and we looked at the effect of quotas um, and this is these are 1,100 companies from 42 different countries around the world over a 10-year period. So we had a pretty large data to really make these comparisons. And what we actually found was that um, quotas actually have a positive effect of getting women on the boards, so they had more greater percentage of women on the boards, but quotas also had a positive effect on turnover of women on the boards, and it also had a negative effect of women in executive positions. So when you force companies to sort of uh, engage in diversity, companies try to sort of, it, it doesn't always work, at least that's what our evidence shows. And there have been examples in Norway, for example, uh, you know, in their top companies, they don't have any, you know, in the Egon Zander report, they didn't have a single woman director, executive director. Executive. 
so they have 40%, close to 40% women on, on the boards, but all of them are on the supervisory board or in non-exec position and very few in executive, uh, in executive position. Um, and so I think it's much more important to uh, sort of see that, you know, whether it helps. Whereas when we looked at maternity le legislation, we found that maternity legislation had a much positive impact on all aspects. It had positive Im impact on proportion of women, but also positive impact uh, on women in executive positions and negative impact on turnover. So I think it's important to look at this more holistically in terms of, um, you know, not just in terms of what happens getting women in leadership positions, but their sustainability and success once they get there, rather than uh, sort of situations which can actually set them up to fail. Leah, the role of government? I think um, the recent data we had on, on, on you know, this uh, gender pay gap yeah. was shocking. Yeah. But Hot. it wasn't really very revealing, was it? Mm. Um, we still don't know kind of within occupations kind of the, the, the gender pay gap. We, we have this median that, that, that companies were forced to, to reveal. Um, and I think where government policy might really help, it, because I think transparency is really key mm. here. We don't really know what we're, what we're up against until, until uh, we have more knowledge about gender pay gaps within each institution. Um, I think we might do something like have a annual gender pay audit, just the way a company's books are audited and you might have a financial audit. You, you might have external people coming into the firm looking at uh, pay grades, looking at gender within that, looking at like for like to look at, at, at gender pay gaps. Then you're really able to start to kind of dig into this. And you know, without transparency, without knowing kind of what's going on, the, these kind of median figures are interesting insight, but don't really tell us kind of what's going on in the firm and the extent to which uh, this is about vertical, vertical kind of segregation or, or horizontal. So, so I think actually that's something that could quickly become part of company culture and you could have um, there, there would be a business case why companies would put a lot more time and energy themselves into this. I don't know, uh, Sucheta, if you found this, but sometimes when you go into firms, um, whether out of convenience or that they truly don't know, sometimes they don't have a great sense themselves of what's going on within their organization. So it would also be an um, important mechanism to allow them to understand their own pay grades. Linda, do you see a role of government here? Yes, definitely. Um, I may I just use the word culture, and what we need to change is culture. We need to um, uh, those of us in positions to do so to change the conversation and to make sure this stuff is talked about and acted on. Uh, but for me, uh, uh, notwithstanding Suchessa's point, I think that must be underpinned by quotas. I don't think quotas are the uh, are going to solve the problem, but we need. I mean, uh, gosh. 
20 years ago when I was a teenager, I never would have thought this would have been necessary. But uh, like we're here now, it's 2018. And it, I think we need to have this sort of legislative intervention. Um, uh, as I say, I, I, this is distressing to me, but um, and it doesn't solve the whole problem. But I think quotas need to be there. More data, as you say. But also those of us that lead conversations to uh, to be able to to point things out. Um, and I was thinking, uh, just as you were talking to me, we were at, uh, uh, I work with, uh, with cohorts of entrepreneurs. And uh, after we did finish some training a few weeks ago, we went to the pub together, sort of 20 people. And, um, and at eight o'clock, one of my colleagues said, hey, check it out. And we looked around the table and uh, there were still 16 people there. But the people who had left were all women. And uh, because they have families, I mean, some of them may have families as well, but the people who were left were, 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 were all the men, all the women had gone. And so uh, the next morning, uh, when we had them in for the, the next day of training, um, we pointed that out to the group and they hadn't noticed it because you wouldn't notice it unless somebody points it out to you. Um, and then now we're having a conversation about, well, what should we do? The answer is go to the pub earlier, it turns out. But, but we have to acknowledge as a thing, we want to include everybody. And if we want to include everybody, then we need to find ways of doing it. And uh, so, but I absolutely feel that those arguments will be made stronger if we have underpinning legislation that, uh, that there's a push and a pull. It does seem that, the big objective is cultural change, and that's mm. probably the most difficult thing yeah. to achieve, certainly through policy, or because many of these issues we've been talking about have been long-standing and well-ingrained, certainly in Britain, since the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and it seems that the big difficulty is cultural change. And some of these issues, such as quotas and, and um, uh, other initiatives, are about trying to engender cultural change, mm. which would take a long time. Yeah. So um, there is there is role for stakeholders to play in this as well. So government is one of the stakeholders, but for example, there has been organized effort on the part of, say for example, investment groups as well. Like for example, there are investment funds that are around, uh, uh, around uh, uh, gender diversity in organizations. There is, you know, you mentioned audit, and there are actually uh, rankings of companies based not purely on stock performance, but actually on gender uh, diversity as part of the uh, social social responsibility of the organizations as well. Um, in fact, there is a study that has found that shareholder activism, one of the top issues on shareholder activism, is actually gender diversity, and um, and and there has been organized effort of not-for-profit not organizations such as 30% Club, for example, that have been very, um, and, and level 20, for example, in the private equity industry, there has been some organized effort. So I think it's, it's basically government is important, but then you have other stakeholders who actually, on whom the firms depend, also play a very important role in this as well. And I was thinking as you were speaking there, so I, so I work in, uh, somewhat in the field of social investment and mm -hmm. social investment's a, a new, a new mm -hmm. field. And uh, uh, we've been pretty horrified to see how rapidly it's replicated the gender imbalances of the mainstream investment field. I mean, it's also immediately started talking about why it's doing this or how is this happening. But these new industries that we referred to earlier, new types of work, uh, unless we do something different, we are going to end up in the same situation yeah. we've always been in. It's, it's surprising to yeah. me and, and shocking. Okay. Well, we're running out of time. Uh, I'd certainly like to carry on the conversation. We will through future podcasts and many of these important issues that have been raised today. I'd, I'd like to thank my colleagues, 
Linda Bell, Mia Gray, and Sucheta Nadkarni for, for joining me today on this podcast. Uh, you can contact us through Cambridge Judge Business School website and our social media channels. Uh, and you can also check out our website to find more details about both past and future conferences in terms of the Women's Leadership Conference. Further details are available uh, on our website. If you have ideas for future episodes of our podcast series, just please let us know. We will be running future podcasts regularly in the series. Thank you for joining us. Hope you can join us next time.